Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 13 this morning. We want to look at verses 36 through 46. Uh, Building kingdom truth on parables is what I've titled the message here. Lord, we thank you for your word. Now, give me grace to explain the text accurately and clearly. A lot of confusion over the parables. Lord, I pray that you would help me to teach. You're the ultimate teacher. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. And so we commit our study to you now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we have the outline up there, and we are in chapter 13, the parables of the king. Matthew presents Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophesied Jewish messianic king. And this messianic king would be no ordinary king. He would be no ordinary person. He is presented in the Old Testament as a descendant of David. That's his humanity. But also at the same time as Lord, that is deity. For example, uh, and we see this in a number of places in the Old Testament, but here in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name, his person by which he shall be, will be called the Lord, the Lord, our righteousness. So this messianic king and the kingdom go together. Thus Jesus presented himself to Israel as her messianic king, with emphasis being on his messianic lordship. The first ten chapters of Matthew present various lines of evidence showing that Jesus is indeed the prophesied Messianic king. Chapters 11 and 12 show that Israel rejected the Messianic lordship claims of Jesus. In response, Jesus, then in his public ministry, turned to teaching parables to the crowds. The parables revealed further kingdom insight to the true disciples, while at the very same time concealing it from those rejecting the messianic kingship slash lordship of Jesus. I have studied the parables for 35 years, and one reason I was really looking forward to studying Matthew is because of the parables. I really wanted to do a deep dive, intensive study of the parables. And really, for the first time in my ministry, I feel I've got a very strong grip on the parables because of of the study. Uh, I think what we find in the parables is really these three key emphases, the essence of the Matthew 13 parables. Further kingdom truth previously hidden is now revealed and concealed. Number two, there is now going to be a delay in the establishment of the kingdom, which will be inaugurated at the second coming. And number three, the main theme is dealing with who will ultimately go into the kingdom and who will not. There are a total of eight parables given in Matthew chapter 13, all of which are given on the same occasion. Jesus interpreted the first two as recorded in the chapter. But we are not given the interpretation of the last six. And because of this, we have all kinds of ideas and all kinds of many and varied ideas of interpretation put forth. 
However, Christ's interpretation of the first two, in many ways, serves as a guide for properly interpreting the others. The parable of the wheat and tares is stated in Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and then interpreted by Christ in verses 36 through 43. So in our study, we now come to Christ's interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And notice we pick it up there, verse 36, Matthew 13, verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Note right out, we have Christ's lordship on display here again, where he says, it says, Jesus sent the multitude away. Who's in charge here? Well, it's Jesus. Uh, He is directing the multitude. It's not like somebody saying, well, man, the crowd is just kind of having its way here. No, no, no. Jesus is in charge of the crowd. He sent the multitudes away. And the house referred to here is evidently the same one that Christ left in chapter 13, verse 1, to go out and preach to the crowds. And this house was presumably located in Capernaum, and many surmise it was very possibly Peter's house. Now remember that Jesus said in verse 11 that the mysteries of the kingdom revealed in the parables were not for the Christ-rejecting crowds to know, but they were given for the true disciples to know. But then we might ask, well, why didn't they get it then? I mean, here they are saying, explain to us the parable." Well, the answer is, they did, in fact, get it with further help, with further explanation from Christ. D.A. Carson says, They are not distinguished from the crowds by their instant and intuitive understanding, but by their persistence in seeking explanations. The difference was that they really wanted to know. And in diligently seeking after the truth, Jesus helped them to understand. Verse 37, here's the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Now this uh, title, son of man, is a messianic title going back to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. The field is the world, he says, And in that context, Jesus, the Son of Man, saves people who are here called the sons of the kingdom. That is, those who will ultimately live in the kingdom. In contrast are the tares, that is, counterfeit Christians, who are the sons of the devil. And in this world, the good seed, the wheat, and the tares grow together. And the thing about tares is that they are so similar to wheat that until maturity, you really can't tell them apart. Deception is Satan's thing. It's really what the devil is all about, deception. And he constantly uses tares to cause disruption for the true people of God. And for those that are in the balance, maybe trying to sort out what truth is, it's confusing. Tares are not planted looking as thorns or noxious weeds. No, they are planted for the purpose of deception. They are planted 
to look like wheat. It's in that deceptive form that Satan does so much of his dirty work. Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, and so are his ministers of wickedness. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15. New kingdom truth was that during the time of kingdom delay, God would continue to sow kingdom people in the world. But there would also, at the same time, be sons of the wicked one side by side. During this time of delay, there are possessors and there are merely professors. And you often can't tell them apart. William MacDonald says this, Satan has a counterfeit for every divine reality. He sows the world with those who look like, talk like, and to some extent, walk like disciples. But they are not genuine followers of the king. The Jews expected the Messiah to come on the scene and immediately destroy the evildoers and take his people into the kingdom. But here Christ shows that during the time of delay, God is building a kingdom people and allows both his kingdom people and the sons of the wicked one to grow side by side in the world. This was new kingdom insight, not revealed before. Verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. We don't have to wonder about it. He tells us very clearly, the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of this age. Jesus, as the son of man, sows the sons of the kingdom in the world, while the devil at the same time sows the sons of the wicked one. God has his children, and the devil has his. Those who are not God's children are children of the devil, and there's no middle ground. One either belongs to Jesus, or they belong to the devil. John very plainly says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. By the way, what are the, sins, uh, the, the works of the devil? The works are the, of the devil are an unbroken pattern of sin. This defines the devil's people. It defines the devil, defines his people. Christ came to break the power of sin. Yes, to deliver us from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. And so he says, verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. That is in terms of his new nature, wed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never sins, and the new nature never sins. And the new, na new nature never desires to sin. We still have the flesh, the old nature. But in view here is what's been born of God, that new nature. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, uh, his seed, God's seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. I mean, the new nature born of God, uh, wed with the Holy Spirit, cannot sin. 
And then he says, this becomes evident. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. They're seen. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Notice what he says there. Don't let anyone deceive you. There are always deceivers who claim that you can live like the devil and be a child of God. Well, John refutes this. Practice tells. It does not tell perfectly because there are very deceitful tares in the mix who play the game very well like Judas. For a time, they play it very well. But the general rule is that over time, practice tells. Even so, God alone is the final judge. We are fruit inspectors, but God alone is the final judge. Now, earlier in the parable, in verse 30, Christ had said, Let both the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest. And because of this, certain people have taught that the church now should just tolerate all kinds of ungodly people in the midst. Uh, Again, William MacDonald responds, and he says this, This parable does not justify, as some mistakenly suppose, the toleration of ungodly people in a local Christian church. Remember that the field is the world, not the church. Local churches are explicitly commanded to put out of their fellowship all who are guilty of certain forms of wickedness. So this par- <clears throat> excuse me, this parable does not sanction indifference or a lack of discernment. It simply tells us to leave final judgment to God. In the church which is a holy family, uh, there are both doctrinal and moral standards for the fellowship as laid out in the scriptures. Tares outwardly may for a time deceptively take root in the church. But that is why we are to be so vigilant night and day and not allow compromise to take hold. That is why the elders are warned to ever be closely guarding And watching for the good of the flock. It's what good elders do. Note that this harvest of judgment comes at the end of the age, which in context is seen in verses 41 and then also 43 as coinciding with the time that Christ comes to set up his kingdom. So, as an overview, here's what we're looking at. At his first coming, the kingdom was indeed offered, but it was rejected. That's what we saw in Matthew 11 and 12. And now further kingdom insight is that the kingdom has indeed been delayed. But in this time of delay, there is a co-mingled condition. The children of God, ultimately the sons of the kingdom, and the children of the devil are growing side by side in the world. The harvest is the second coming. Then Christ will sort it all out. That's really an overview of what's being stated here. Verse 41. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Note that the angels are the reapers whom Christ will use to sort out the wicked so that none of them go into his newly constituted kingdom at the time of his second coming. 
There is a tremendous emphasis in the scriptures that at the second coming, Christ comes with power and great glory with all of his holy angels. But note it very carefully here. Even though the tares were good at being deceptive counterfeits, yet what really defined them was that they were those who offend and those who practice lawlessness. Again, we see that in the end, practice tells. And this corresponds perfectly with what Christ said earlier in Matthew chapter 7. Just by way of review, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. There's the issue, by the way. They say it. It's not true, but they say it. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied your name, cast out demons, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Same idea. They didn't really know Jesus as Lord, and it was demonstrated in their practice. In the end, the tares in reality are those who did not really know Christ as Lord, and it showed in their practice of lawlessness. They really are covert rebels like Judas. They outwardly claim to be kingdom people. And there are many of them as seen in the parable of the mustard seed. But this outward movement, which grows large, is rife with leaven, as also noted in the leaven parable, which is linked with the mustard seed parable. This outward movement of professing kingdom people grows large and yet thoroughly leavened. But note something else here. Not only are tares ultimately described as those who practice lawlessness, but also as those who offend. The word offend is the Greek word scandalon, which can also be translated as stumbling block. A scandalon is that which causes trouble or others to fall into sin. And this is the concern with the tares. It seems that the tares are those who outwardly profess to be kingdom people, and they put on a really good show outwardly. But in truth, they are stumbling blocks who practice lawlessness. They don't really know Christ as Lord, although they profess that they do. They profess to be kingdom people. Now it is sobering to realize that so many who appear to be children of the kingdom are in reality phony tares whose destiny will be hell. In the end, God will sort them out of his kingdom and they will be cast into the furnace of fire, which is a description ultimately of hell. The tares are going to hell. This is their final destination. The Bible elsewhere describes this final place of torment for the wicked as the lake of fire. That's where the Bible really ends up as the conclusion of all things. Revelation 20, 15, anyone not found written in the book of life. I hope your name's written in the book of life because if it's not, read the rest of the verse. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus repeatedly described hell as a place of torment involving unending torment in the terms of weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. 
Here in uh, Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They've been there a thousand years. They're still there burning. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Bible does not describe hell as a place of annihilation, <clears throat> but rather as a place of, en- of unending torment, a place of never-ending agony and misery. Really, hell is a place so terrible that it really defies comprehension. And I don't know how mentally healthy it is to even focus on it too long. Although Christ made a tremendous emphasis for a good purpose, and that is to to warn people. It is the prerogative of God to consign people to hell. And so again, we note the deity of Christ who is ultimately behind this casting of the lost tares into the furnace of fire. But in contrast, verse 43, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. At the harvest... At the end of the age, the second coming, Christ will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, as it says in Matthew 3.12. But at the same time, he will gather the wheat into the barn, which is to say, the fold in his kingdom. Now, many believe that verse 43 is a takeoff of Daniel 12.3, which says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The saved described earlier as the wheat are here called the righteous. Positionally, God's people are righteous as justification is by faith alone. But a saving faith is a life-changing faith and it demonstrates itself to some degree in practical righteousness in the life. In the kingdom, the righteous, in contrast to those who practice lawlessness, are going to reflect and bask in the very glory of the Lord, which at that time will radiate supremely throughout the entire kingdom world. The messianic kingdom is given three designations in relation to this parable. It is called the kingdom of heaven, verse 24, the kingdom of the Son, in verse 41, and the kingdom of the Father, in verse 43. And all of these nuances are true. The Father mediates the Messianic kingdom through the Son. Well, Jesus concludes this parable describing who ultimately will and who will not go into the kingdom with this warning. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Whenever Jesus says this, it's for emphasis. It emphasizes the importance of what has just been said, as if to say, you better make sure you get this because it's all important, eternally important. Consistently, this saying is spoken in reference to eternal matters related to salvation in the kingdom. Jesus said this in relation to both his first parable of the sower and the soils, and now also in relation to the second parable of the wheat and the tares. This has eternal significance about who ultimately will have part in the kingdom and those who will be cast out. Indeed, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, we now come to the next two parables, which go together. We saw earlier that the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven were essentially twin parables. 
Once again, in verses 44 through 46, we have a set of twin parables that are very similar in emphasis, with only slightly different emphases. Note there, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, there have been two main different interpretations of these two parables. One view sees the man finding the treasure or finding the pearl of great price as Christ, who then gives his life to secure it. In this view, the treasure and the pearl are the people of God who will be in the kingdom. And that is fine theology that squares with the broader context of Scripture, but it's very forced when considering the immediate context. The other main view, the more natural view, I would argue, is the one which I hold to, which is this. The kingdom is of supreme value, and those who find it are willing to sell all and buy it. Now, some have argued against this view because of the language of buying it. But there are good reasons to think that Christ is here using illustrative language consistent with the flow of thought in these parables, which consistently use the metaphorical language of the kingdom of heaven is like. And as we will see, it is consistent with the emphasis that Christ makes elsewhere. All true Christians know that the scriptures teach that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is a hill to die on. But I would argue that properly understood, what Christ is illustrating here in these parables is the nature of a true saving faith. That becomes the ultimate issue. The scripture does at points use the language of buying in relation to the response of saving faith in salvation. And yet at the same time emphasizes it's all of grace. For example, back here in the Old Testament, Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? So we see that same kind of concept here. There's a response that is called for. Charles Ryrie correctly says, One view is, quote, The parables of the treasure and pearl indicate the incomparable value of the kingdom, which will cause a man to do everything possible to possess it. Now, I want to present to you six key reasons to think what is in view is the value of the kingdom and the metaphorical transaction of true saving faith involved in a person acquiring it. 
So here are six bullet points that I don't have time to flesh out at length, but I'll give you the bullet points. Number one, Jesus, in introducing the parables, makes the major issue that of salvation. In Matthew 13, 14, and 15, quoting from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, Jesus shows that the parables were dealing with the issue of salvation. As he says, quote, Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. That's introductory. Number two. At the end of the seventh parable on the dragnet, which clearly involves the issue of salvation in the kingdom, Christ then says in verse 51, Have you understood all these things? As if to indicate that all these parables are dealing with essentially the same basic issue. Number three. The initial parable of the sower and the soils is clearly dealing ultimately with salvation. And this parable is a template for all the other parables. Because in Mark 4.13, Christ said of this parable, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? This parable is a framework for understanding all the rest of the parables. And it deals fundamentally with the nature of a saving faith response necessary to enter the kingdom. Number four, both the parables that Christ interpreted as recorded here in Matthew deal with the ultimate issue of salvation. That is true in relation to the parable of the sower and the soils and also in relation to the parable of the wheat and the tares. Both fundamentally are dealing with the issue of salvation in the kingdom. Number five, all the surrounding parables... On both sides of these two parables in question, namely the treasure and the pearl, are dealing fundamentally with the issue of salvation in the kingdom. Not only is it true of the first two leading parables interpreted by Christ, but also of the parable of the dragnet that immediately follows. So the whole flow and context of all of the parables is really dealing with the fundamental issue of salvation. I really appreciate this from Henry Morris who says, the common opinion that the man in each case is Christ, the treasure is Israel, and the pearl is the church, seems to miss the thrust of the other parables in Matthew 13, all of which have to do with the character and people of the physical aspect of God's kingdom. And finally, number six, the emphasis on making a sellout, sellout commitment in order to attain the treasure of the kingdom is completely consistent, properly understood, with the teaching of Christ in the Scriptures. You see, in Matthew chapter 10, that we've already studied, when Christ calls, uh, Christ calls for allegiance to himself over all other commitments. And in doing so, he is essentially saying the same thing. Remember, Matthew 10, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. The issue of supremely valuing Jesus is consistently the issue. And it is clearly shown to be the issue in a parallel passage in John 12 where Christ makes the issue eternal life. In, in John chapter 12, Jesus says, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. What Jesus is teaching about valuing kingdom truth, and ultimately, again, the king and kingdom truth are intimately intertwined. What Jesus is teaching about valuing kingdom truth above all in the parable of the treasure and the pearl is the very same concept he stressed to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. And he said to the rich young ruler, now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? The issue is eternal life. Don't have to wonder about it. It's not some deeper discipleship issue. This is eternal life issue. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? That's very significant because the whole issue is the lordship of Jesus Christ, who he is as God. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. Do you really realize the significance of, of calling me good? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, murder, steal, bear false witness, defraud, honor your father and mother. He answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Boy, here's a self-righteous person. I've done it all. Kept those commandments just perfectly. Never disobeyed my parents. No, 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 no. Good, little good boy here. Little good Dwighty. I'm just very good. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I, I love that. Loved him and said to him, one thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have. Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and take up the cross and follow me. Salvation is not a matter of works, but it is a matter of faith that involves the will. It will cost you your will. It will cost you your self-will. It will cost you your rebellious self-will that must submit to Christ as Lord as your supreme authority, as your greatest commitment. This was the issue with the rich young ruler. His money was his God, and he wasn't willing to exchange his money as his Lord for Jesus as his Lord. It was a Godship or a Lordship issue. And therefore, he could not be saved. In that sense, a person must be willing to sell out for Jesus. It's a matter of saving faith, which recognizes Christ as personal Lord above all else. Now, if you doubt this, just listen to Paul's personal testimony in Philippians chapter 3. There, Paul shares this. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish, more literally dung, that I may gain Christ. Be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul counted everything lost that he might gain Christ. This is the only way he could have Christ. And this kind of sellout for Christ is according to faith. It's the very nature of saving faith. And did you see in Philippians 3.8 that Paul spoke of counting all things lost as being a reference to Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
This was a lordship commitment. A lordship commitment is a faith commitment. A saving faith commitment. It is significant that the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is significant that the Bible says, those who are true believers have one Lord, one faith, Ephesians 4, 5. It is significant that the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is significant that Doubting Thomas, coming to a New Testament faith, said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, you have seen and believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe in the same way. Matthew 23, 37. Christ is really addressing the Jews here. And he says, how often I wanted to gather you. I'm summarizing. But he says, but you were not willing. You were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. You know the real issue with Israel? You know the real issue with Israel? You know what it was? It's amazing how people overlook this. It's so basic. You, you know what the real sin of Israel was in, in relationship to Christ's first coming? You know what it was? It's not that they rejected Christ as their Savior. Yeah, they did that. Christ hadn't been to the cross. You say, well, Israel didn't believe that he died for their sins. He hadn't died for their sins yet. You know what the real issue for Israel was? They rejected the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They refused to accept him as Messiah Lord, who becomes the deliverer. That's what Israel's great rejection was. In the parable of the Minas, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus spoke of himself as a nobleman who comes from a, a far place to receive a kingdom. But the people said, quote, We will not have this man to reign over us, Luke 19, 14. That's what the issue was with Israel. There is a death to self involved in the act of saving faith. You see, there's lots of verses like this one. Galatians 5, 24. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In saying yes to Christ as Lord, we say no to the flesh, which is our rebellious self-will. And of course, it is God who brings us to this point. Apart from God's intervention of grace, we would never come to saving faith. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that's, that's works, works. <laughs> works? Is it, was it works when Thomas said, my Lord and my God? Jesus said, you've believed. This is a matter of faith. It's a matter of the nature of saving faith. The thief on the cross is a perfect illustration of the nature of saving faith, which involves death to self. Earlier in the day, both thieves were mocking Christ on the cross. In Matthew 27, 44, it says, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him. But then something happened in the heart of the repentant thief. He had a fundamental change of mind called repentance. He humbled himself. It cost him his ego. It cost him his sinful, rebellious self-will. And in saving faith, he looked to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In doing so, he saw Jesus as Lord, who is in charge of admission into the kingdom. That's a lordship concept, by the way. 
He saw Jesus as Savior who could get him into the kingdom. He saw Jesus as more valuable than anything else. Jesus was his all in all, his full hope of the kingdom. His salvation was not a matter of works, but it was a matter of the heart that called on Jesus as Lord and Savior. It cost him his ego. It cost him his will. And yet at the same time, it was a free gift for simply calling on the name of the Lord. This is the nature of a true saving faith. New International Bible Commentary, there is no suggestion of purchasing salvation, but that coming under the sovereignty of God means the complete denial of self. And so Christ says, verse 44, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The subject is the kingdom, which is like hidden treasure that one discovers. In Bible times, it was common to bury your treasure in the ground. didn't have banks like we do. And so you would bury it somewhere for, for safekeeping. But then because of war, death, or whatever, the treasure could be lost. Later, someone digging may accidentally discover that treasure. That's the picture here. Now, technically, the treasure belonged to the landowner. So the man finding the treasure went and sold all that he had to buy the field and thereby gain possession of the treasure. The point of the parable is the value of the treasure, which is the kingdom, and giving all to secure it. The kingdom is most valuable, and attaining it is costly but also joyous. It will cost you everything, your will, but it's worth it. D.A. Carson says, the kingdom of heaven is worth infinitely more than the cost of discipleship. And those who know where the treasure lies joyfully abandon everything else to secure it. Holman Christian Study Bible, these parables teach that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that the wise are willing to sacrifice anything in order to gain it. This parable teaches that the great treasure of the kingdom is sometimes found by those who are not actively looking for it, but rather unexpectedly stumble upon it. The Samaritan woman is an example. She wasn't looking for it, and here comes Christ. The Apostle Paul certainly wasn't looking for it on the road to Damascus, and Christ intervened. Isaiah 65, 1, God says, I was found by those who did not seek me. Some who are not looking for the kingdom, in effect, end up stumbling upon it and in saving faith, joyously receive the truth of Christ and thereby gain entrance into the kingdom. You see, the Gentiles, which largely my audience here is, as a group, are not looking for the king or the kingdom. They couldn't care less. And yet, by the grace of God, many of us have suddenly found ourselves face-to-face with kingdom treasure as presented in the person of Christ. And those who come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ become kingdom citizens and thereby possess the kingdom. The value of the kingdom remains hidden from most people. Those who by grace discover its priceless value are like a man finding hidden treasure in a field who gladly gives up everything in order to obtain it. In contrast to the Gentiles are those who are looking for the kingdom. The Jews were looking for the Messianic king and his kingdom, and yet largely failed to see it when it was presented to them. Yet there was a remnant of true disciples who did see the truth of it and embraced Jesus as Messiah Lord, and thereby gained entrance to the kingdom. 
The second parable in this set depicts them, uh, depicts the, these who were searching. Uh, it depicts the person searching for the kingdom and upon finding the kingdom truth in Christ, sells all to secure it, as Paul did in Philippians 3. Note there, verse 45, 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Nelson study Bible. This parable has a slightly different emphasis. Though the first individual found his treasure by accident, the second found his by diligent search. No matter how a person is led to Christ's kingdom, its values and delights will be beyond estimation. Again, the nature of a saving faith is brought out in many places in the scriptures. Uh, For example, in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, we see this of Moses. Where it says there, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the, the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked forward to the reward. Now Hebrews 11.6 brings out that the nature of a true saving faith diligently seeks God which is consistent with the two parables that we are studying here in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. For example, we, we love to quote uh, Hebrews eleven six, 6, but sometimes we don't think about it real deeply. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And then he goes on to describe what kind of faith it is that pleases him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith comes to God believing that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In view is a saving faith such as Moses had when it says he looked to the reward. In Genesis 15, 1, God told Abram, I am your exceedingly great reward. And then in context, a few verses later in Genesis 15, 6, it says Abraham believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. In Hebrews 11.6, the word seek in the phrase diligently seek him is an intensive form in the Greek. It is a determined effort to find something or look intently for something. And this is the sense of Jeremiah 29.13 where God says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This is the sense of intensity in the parable of the treasure and the pearl here in Matthew 13. Dr. Michael Vlock says, These parables speak of the value of the kingdom and the intense desire that must accompany those who seek to enter it. One should value the kingdom above all else. And again, Carson, I think insightfully says, Jesus is not interested in religious efforts or in affirming that one can buy the kingdom... On the contrary, he is saying that the person whose whole life has been bound up with pearls, the entire heritage of the Jews, will, on comprehending the true value of the kingdom as Jesus presents it, gladly exchange all else to follow him. In summary, what do we see? The parables of the treasure and the pearl summarized. Number one, kingdom truth in the time of kingdom delay is providentially discovered. Number two, those that find it see it as most valuable above all else. And number three, those who value it properly are willing to sell all to acquire it. 
These parables illustrate the nature of saving faith in kingdom citizens. You know what I see? Kingdom people are all in. They're all in. We're not perfect. We're all in process. We're not going to be glorified or perfect until we get to, to the glory land. But our lives are dramatically changed when we come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We sell out and we buy in. In these parables, Jesus was bringing out new kingdom insight related to the time of delay and emphasizing that a personal faith commitment is necessary. Just to be a Jew is not going to get you in. Kingdom citizenship is not based on heritage or religion, but rather on a wholehearted faith commitment to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And this is what Israel failed to comprehend, but what all true disciples come to see. When I first read through John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus, I thought it was heresy. You see, I had been discipled in easy believism, which is really tantamount to a lordless gospel. And when I came to the part where MacArthur says, quote, salvation is a gift, yet it costs everything, I put seven question marks in the margin. And when I put one question mark in the margin, it's serious. But as I read on, I saw that the cost he was talking about was, quote, the total abandonment of self-will. It will cost you your self-will. Believing on Christ as Lord involves death to self. This is consistent with Jesus' teaching and with saving faith response illustrated in the parables as found here in Matthew 13. Paul said, I count all things lost for the superior truth of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things that I may gain Christ. Well, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you believed on Christ as personal Lord and Savior, in which he is your number one above all others? That was the issue in Matthew 10 about loving him above mother or father, son or daughter. That was the issue with the rich young ruler who is challenged to love Jesus, make Jesus number one over all of his riches. Well, if so, if you've done this, I'll see you in the kingdom. If not, now is the accepted time. Come to Jesus. Receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. This is the only way into the kingdom. You say, well, I think I'm just going to get there. I, I can reject his lordship, but I, I want fire insurance. I want him as my savior. Yeah, everybody wants that. Uh, sorry, I don't see that anywhere in the New Testament scriptures. I'm open. Show me. I've studied it very thoroughly. The only way into the kingdom is to accept Christ as your personal lord and your savior. This is how you come to possess the true kingdom treasure. I deal with these people, you see, and I'll go through the gospel and I'll ask them about, do they want to accept Christ? And sometimes they kind of shrug. Well, maybe. They're not there. They're not there. Kingdom people want it and they're willing to sell all to buy in. As Savior, Jesus died for all of our sins. He alone is Savior. As Lord over all, He rose again from the dead. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.